Welcome to the Springer Math Podcast. In this month's podcast, our guests are Catherine Beneteau and Dimitri Cavinson. Besides being mathematicians, they are married, work at the same university, and share similar research interests. In this special episode, we are invited to share their experience with harmonizing research, love, parenthood, and career. Catherine Beneteau is a professor in the Mathematics and Statistics Department at the University of South Florida in the United States. She was educated in Canada at McGill University, where she got her bachelor's and master's degrees in mathematics. She obtained her PhD in 1999 at the University at Albany under the supervision of Boris Kornblum. Her main research interests are in complex function theory and mathematics education. Dimitri Cavinson is a distinguished professor in the Mathematics and Statistics Department at the University of South Florida. He obtained his PhD at Brown University after his undergraduate studies at Moscow State Pedagogical Institute in the ex-Soviet Union. His main research interests are in complex analysis, potential theory, and partial differential equations. Dimitri is editor-in-chief of the journal Analysis and Mathematical Physics. They will be hosted by Dorothy Maslam, senior editor for mathematics. Hi, Katrin. Hi, Dima. Welcome to the Springer Math Podcast, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So the first question is for Katrin. How did you end up becoming a mathematician? Well, that was not an easy uh, decision, actually. I never had the lifelong dream of being a mathematician, actually. When I was in uh, university, when I was in high school, actually, I was good at mathematics. I liked mathematics, and I didn't really know what I wanted to study. So I was trying to decide if I was going to be either a writer or a, mathemat- or a writer or something involving mathematics, but I didn't really know. And so I just decided to take courses in math and... Um, I liked what I was doing, but I didn't ever visualize myself continuing in that as a career, but I didn't really know what else to do. So I just continued working, taking courses, and uh, then when I finished my degree, I didn't know what to do, so my I had some um, professors who suggested that I apply for a scholarship to do a master's, so I applied for a scholarship to do a master's, and I ended up doing a master's at McGill University in Canada. And at first, I just felt like I didn't recognize anybody who was like me. So first of all, there were there was only one woman, and I didn't have any women professors until the last year of my master's. And everybody that I was meeting seemed to be only interested in mathematics and didn't want to talk about anything else. So I just thought, I can't, I can't be in this group. But then um, I had this woman professor, and then what happened is I started to do research. So I got involved in the research problem. And at that point, I really started loving what I was doing. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe I can do this. And so then I decided to apply uh, to do a PhD. And from that point on, basically from the moment I started actually working on a research problem, I was completely hooked. And, uh, you know, then went to do a PhD and the rest is history, basically. Mm, That's really inspiring. Thanks for sharing. Dima, your story is a little different. Why did you become a mathematician? Well, uh... I grew up surrounded by professors and doctors of various kinds, so it was clear that it's going to be something of the sort. And then uh, mathematics was at the end of the list. I tried history, but in Soviet Union, that would be really stupid. Uh, Then I went to biology, but that was uh, kind of too much hands-on. Then I went to physics, 
which was very romantic, uh, very much romanticized in Soviet Union. But again, it depends on social environment. And also, I didn't understand physics very well. So mathematics was at the end, and it was a perfect match. And then don't forget soccer. <clears throat> yeah, well, uh, all of this happened after I failed <laughs> as a professional soccer player because I became nearsighted. And it was before contacts invented. <clears throat> My first dream was the, uh, as it was called in Moscow, soccer school for youth, but I failed. And uh, then was mathematics, and then I uh, took the exams and got accepted to this very elite school in Moscow, school number two. It still exists. It actually has a wonderful website. My classmate is a um, not director, but uh, what is it uh, responsible for scientific part? It's uh, called lycée now, not not school. Mm -hmm. And there it was predetermined. Although we had a lot of people there who went through this travel into that school because they were interested in humanities, because humanities were very strong in the school. So after the school. It was all predetermined. I failed being Jewish uh, entrance exams to Moscow University, but still, it was there was basically one way to go. So, tell us a little bit uh, about how you met the two of you. When was that, and uh, what was the occasion? The very first time we met was a long, long time ago, many years before we got to know each other. Actually, with. I was still in graduate school, and um, Dima was already a faculty member, and I knew him. I knew of him because I knew his work because we're in. Um, we have common research interests, and um, I was giving a talk. I was giving a talk as a graduate student at a conference on my research, and I was a little bit. I was very nervous because it was one of my first talks I had ever given, and there was this audience full of the Russian professors and all the American students were afraid of the Russian professors. And um, as I'm giving my talk, I was talking about something related to Privalov's theorem. And at the end of my talk, Dima, who was sitting in the very back row, he lifted his hand and he said, but have you heard of the first Privalov theorem? And of course, I hadn't heard of the first Privalov theorem and I didn't know what it was and I was humiliated. And then I said, no, you know, I haven't heard of the first Privalov theorem. And, um, and he was so wonderful about it because he said, well, you know, it says such and such and such. And, you know, it makes your results really interesting because it shows that you're, you have this kind of a set. And um, in the end, it turned out to be such a great experience. Um, and he was so nice to me. Um, but that was, that was we met years and years ago, Dima. And yeah, it was in San Antonio, I mm -hmm. think. I think it was in Baltimore, actually. It was in Baltimore and um, San Antonio. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> then we didn't meet for years after that. So then, you know, I went off and had my life and he had his life. And um, years and years later, we met at a conference in Marseille where we all sat together. It was a conference center. It's called Lumini. And it's this beautiful place because it's in the Calanque in, in southern France. And um it's a conference center where you all eat together and you sleep there and you give talks during the day and everybody's together all the time. So um, we would sit together at meals in the evening. And because I was French, I knew how to French Canadian. I knew how to order the wine for the table. And, um, and so we got to know each other there. And we actually started working on a problem. 
and uh, so we we fell in love over over Boris theorem, basically <laughs> Boris inequality, and uh, started communicating by email after that. And we were doing mathematics over email, and we actually wrote a paper together. And in the process, somehow fell in love. Oh, what a great story! <laughs> it's so nice. And uh, so today, you, you both have a tenured position at the University of South Florida in Tampa. How how did that happen? Well, uh, not uh, not right away because uh, we met and we actually had our daughter, and Catherine was still working in New Jersey, and uh, I had been working. For for 25 years at the University of Arkansas. And uh, so it was, you know, distant relationship and we had to find positions, which was not easy because we sort of are in the same field and at the same time we're at different points in our respective careers because of the age difference and whatnot. So we... Uh, tried to find positions somewhere at first, and it didn't work. I thought University of Arkansas would be interested in Catherine, but they offer. she was already tenured at uh, New Jersey at Seton Hall, and they didn't offer tenured positions. So we kept looking. I, for a year, I went back to work for national, for the National Science Foundation. Um, since it was only driving distance rather than 1,500 mile uh, distance um, from New Jersey. And then we, the second round of our applications, we were lucky we actually got three yeah, we got three, three offers. offers. Three offers of different types, but three different offers type, for both yeah, of us. For dis decent position for both of us, not... Well, two of them were decent. The, the third one was uh, a little bit uh, kind of demeaning for what Catherine had in New Jersey. And we chose uh, Tampa for various reasons. And not a small thing was that uh, we still have, and they had before us coming here, a very active analysis seminar. Really active and intense sort of Russian-style analysis seminar when everybody is interested and speaker is interrupted all the time and one hour talk becomes three weeks <laughs> talk and so on. And we came here and are still quite... Yeah, happy. we're very lucky. It was a tricky uh, decision because Dima was um, a distinguished professor in Arkansas and I had just gotten tenure at Seton Hall so um, when when we got the job offer here, it was pre tenure. It was tenure track, which mean which meant I was losing my tenure from Seton Hall. But it was also uh, a research university, you know, it had a PhD program. So it was a little bit of a risk for me because it meant I had to increase my research production, and I wasn't a hundred percent sure I could do it. And Dima was worried about it too. Dima was hired as a full professor, so Dima also actually lost rank in in the change at that time. Mm -hmm. um, but what happened for us was so wonderful because the analysis group was so wonderful um, and so stimulating. And also because I had a lot of experience at a, a more teaching school, I was um, very experienced in terms of things related to inquiry learning. And I was able to get education grants for the department right away, which was kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. But also... Um, I just my research flourished there because the department was so was so good and the analysis group was so good 
And it turned out to be not a problem at all to get tenure. And actually, my career blossomed because of it. So I feel that I was very lucky, actually, to get that position in the end. For my career, it was definitely a wonderful thing. Um, so I, I, we now feel that we were really very, very lucky in getting mm-hmm. the positions together here. So what do you think? It seems that the, um, the university's offer for, for you as a couple was, was really crucial for you, that they offered this position at the same time to both of you in the same department. What do you think could the universities or institutions do in general to better support couples? Well, that's a tricky thing because often there's only one position. And that was the case when Dima applied. Not only was there, it was one position, a senior position. So, um, you know, to hire a more senior person, you need more money. And so if we hadn't had, if they hadn't had the spousal hiring policy, we wouldn't have gone there. And mm-hmm. so it was really a big deal that they had spousal hiring policies. And they're controversial in some places because, you know, it's tricky to hire two people when maybe you really only want one person. Um, and I think, but, but for us and for our department, it definitely helped the, the department and the university. I mean, we both came in and we both were very productive there. And we brought in a lot of grant money. So the, the university definitely benefited from that choice of having that spousal hiring position. So I think... People in graduate school now, they're meeting each other in graduate school and, and they need to move together. So I think universities need to be flexible about understanding that people have this two-body problem and trying somehow to find positions for the, for the partner. Mm-hmm. It's a big recruiting. It can potentially be a big recruiting tool, I think. Yeah. And so you, you both work in the same field of mathematics and, uh, and you also have a daughter. And so how, how do you manage to keep, to keep active academically and involved in, in attending conferences, for example? Yeah. Well, <laughs> occasionally we brought our daughter with us. She was traveling. When, she was not even a year old, right, when we went to Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so she... She was the most well-traveled baby anybody ever saw in their life. She went all over Europe before the age of five. We had a passport for her. We had to get a passport for her. When When she she was was four months old. Yeah, she was four months old. I had to hold her up to the camera, you know, so they could take her picture. That's so funny. (laughs) It is funny. I mean, when you fly with a six-month-old baby to Israel, uh, for instance, which takes 10 hours, uh, that can be tricky. Yeah, she had night terrors on that flight to Israel. But uh, you know, hours on the plane. somehow you you well, everybody who uh, was a parent at one time or another lived through it. So it's just you live through it. But uh, some sometimes, occasionally, we got help from our respective parents to stay with her here in Tampa when we traveled for a short time somewhere. So, mostly so she, she, went she mostly came with us, yeah. yeah. And when mm-hmm. we went on sabbatical places, she would come with us. So we would find a school for her to go to. So we were at Mitag Lefter, for example, for four months. And she went to the British school um, right in Yurson and made a lot of friends. And she always made friends with all the graduate students. So the graduate students at all the conferences always made friends with her. And I remember one time our friend Danielle bought Halloween candy because we were there in October, which isn't, you know, it's not, it's not a European tradition, right? So he, mm-hmm. he bought Halloween candy and distributed it to all the graduate students so that she could go door to door at Mitag Leffler and collect the Halloween candy. And 
she would always be drawing pictures on the board and the happy hours. And so we, we basically made the decision to just bring her with us wherever we went, essentially. And that's how we, because we go to the same conferences, right? Since we're in the same fields, we were often going to the same conferences. So we either had to bring her or we had a grandparent who had to take care of her. So most of the time she just traveled with us. It sounds like you really made it work on a very well in a very well way, and you also yeah. had support always yeah. from from your surrounding, right? I think we did, and I think the community was actually very supportive. I think other mathematicians were happy to see her. Um, we had a funny story in in Cyprus one time when we were giving a talk, and she was with us, and there was hardly anybody there because um, it was the summer and the students really weren't there. And so we said to each other, listen, you have to you have to come to my talk. There will be nobody in the audience. And I said, well, what will we do with Sophie? So we brought, you know, we brought some markers and some paper and we just thought, well, she'll just start coloring. So um, we came into the to the room where I was giving the talk and Dima was going to watch over her. And she saw our host, Nikos, who who loves children and she loved him. So she ran right away to him, <laughs> sat in his lap. And I said, Sophie, you can't do that. And he said, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> So I'm giving my talk, and in the front row, there's Nikos holding my daughter. And about 20 minutes into my talk, she pipes up and she says, Mommy, this is so boring. <laughs> the whole audience, of course, burst into laughter. So, so I guess what I'm saying is that somehow she, um, she, you know, she was just a part of our, of our family, and everybody accepted it. You know, everybody was supportive. Mm -hmm. So, do you think she will become a mathematician? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> she doesn't seem headed that way. She loves her mathematics class. She's taking a, a pretty hard math. She's taking the highest level math class in her school, but mm -hmm. she's not a natural. I would say she's not a natural. She's she's more interested in writing and um, social justice and politics, and she's extremely outgoing. And um, so, mm -hmm. I don't think she will be. I'm sure the experiences she's she's had with you on conferences and traveling will be will be remaining with her for the rest of her life. I think so. That's, that's I amazing. think so. She she feels well traveled. Well, she's seen a lot of the world and a lot of different countries and cultures, and I think it's good. I think it's very uh, good. So back to the two of you, um, you you mentioned also before that you wrote a paper together. And you've actually done, you know, you do mathematics together because you work in the same field and you have worked on, on similar problems. So is your way of working mathematically similar? And uh, wh where is it different? Um, we have written several um, papers together. Um, is it similar? I don't think so. No, it isn't really. What do you think, Dima? Uh, I mean, we've... we've Think differently. I, I, I most. I mean, before writing anything down, I have to walk literally walk through it. Uh, yeah, Dima will think about a problem and he'll go walking, and or he'll go on a bike ride, and he'll come and he'll say, "I think, I think I've solved our problem." And I'm thinking, "Well, you were walking or biking. How did you solve the problem?" And that's his way of thinking and clearing his his head. And he's a little bit. I'd say he's a little bit more big picture. You know, he 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 sort of comes with the big idea and he's very creative. And I, for me, I really need to write things down. Like I, it's very difficult for me to think about things without writing. So from that point of view, just sort of a technical difference. Um, when we write together, we fight like crazy because 
we're always trying to, I think we're a good writing team actually because we kind of complement each other because we want to be really clear and I, I'm kind of detail oriented. So I always want to make sure things are correct. And Dima wants to make sure that the big idea is being communicated. So I think the writing product that we end up with is usually quite good. So I think we're a good team in that way, but we argue we argue a lot about what to include and what not to include and what makes it clear and well and 99% of big ideas is bunk so yeah yeah you come home with the big idea and you need someone to kind of critique it till you get to the right thing <laughs> that sounds like a great team <laughs> and what about communicating orally who of you enjoys teaching most or giving talks both both of us in different ways but both of us. Yeah. In which ways? I mean, uh, well, for me, teaching, uh, I actually like teaching. I started teaching. Uh, the system in Soviet Union was that there was, in my high school, there was this, what they call evening math school, and the students, uh, seniors and uh, juniors in high school were teaching in this evening uh, school uh, problem solving and uh, for instance. Well, several of the students I still remember, and uh, uh, some of them uh, actually are professors, one in Rutgers, one in, uh, in uh, Israel. Uh, I think he's in Israel. He was at the University of Chicago, then he moved back to Israel. Uh, and uh, it's fun, but this is very special audience. I can't no matter how old I am, I can't stand teaching disinterested audience. So, and my face shows it. So it's it's uh, not a good relationship. And Catherine, I think, has a different approach uh, to teaching. And I, I enjoy giving lectures, but that's the same thing because uh, you, when you give lectures at a conference, at conferences or seminars, those are the people who actually invited you and they interested. They want to be there. They want to be there versus that uh, people who just want to get out of there as soon as possible. Mm. I, Dima always teases me. He's like, you're really good at teaching the idiots because I, I feel that it's my responsibility to, first of all, I guess I feel that it's my responsibility to get them interested. And I feel a lot of the times that people aren't interested because of their um, previous experiences or they have some kind of anxiety related to doing math or and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not capable or not intelligent so mm -hmm. I try to, to spend some energy on that and develop a classroom atmosphere where people will feel comfortable um, but I, I agree if someone really doesn't want to learn then you know it's very difficult to manage that person but I spend a lot of time on my teaching for sure that, that's a really big part of my life and I really like giving talks, but I'm always terribly, terribly nervous before I give a talk. But then when I give the second I start speaking, I'm uncomfortable and I'm not nervous anymore. And, um, and it's really exciting. It's exciting to give a talk. And, you know, you're communicating with your your colleagues and your friends who are going to talk to you and help you get new ideas for your research and respond to what you've done. So it's very, very stimulating. Um, and I really love that a lot, but it's a lot of work and I always feel this <laughs> anxiety before it was, I don't think you feel that nervous when you give talks, eh? Dima, you don't seem that No, uh, well, I, I sort of live, there is a famous quote by one of the greats of 20th century mathematics analysts, Fritz John, 
who, when he was in his 70s, he was asked, uh, why are you still keen on doing mathematics? What, 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 what is it in it for you? And he said, I'm doing it for the reluctant admiration of my friends. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, I'd say it's a beautiful one. <laughs> it's, it's very close to many of us. It's, uh, I mean, you, you, you want your friends to appreciate what you've done, but it's also, that's what attracted me to mathematics in the first place, being in Soviet Union and everything. It's independent of social circumstances and independent of who is discovering things mm -hmm. because it's just there. And uh, that that is still for now exciting for me after Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. more than 50 years doing it, it's, it's uh, still kicks me. I think though, talking about this makes me think about the difference between the way we grew up in mathematics. So I think in the Soviet Union in general, maybe Dima's experience, even in his school when he was, you know, in eighth and ninth and 10th grades, um, there was a very social atmosphere associated with mathematics. Like you were always talking about mathematics with your friends and that social environment and discussing the problems with your friends was a part of doing mathematics. Whereas for me, it actually took me a long time to feel comfortable doing that in that environment and even discussing mathematics with other people. I was always kind of more of a, more of a loner and less social actually. And it was only later as a, you know, as a, as a professional, you know, once I got a job that I even learned what it's like to go to conferences and interact with people. And, and really, it only really happened for me much later when I went on sabbatical for the first time at Mitag Lefler that I really became comfortable in combining that social environment with the mathematical environment. Um, and I think that's just because it wasn't part of my uh, academic culture growing up, that interaction and that discussion it wasn't as much part of my culture as it was Dima's. So I, I came to it later. Yeah, well, I, I must say that uh, that school, I mean, is still very special because I look at the web page occasionally and uh, the founding director just died last year and there was a big Zoom meeting of uh, former graduates. Uh, it was uh, very special because the ideas, uh, of course, it was predominantly male, but nevertheless, the ideas of misogynism or any kind of, uh, any sort of racism, <laughs> it was impossible in that school. I mean, mm. I kind of grew up there in a very misogynistic and racist society of the Soviet Union, but it was outside. It wasn't part part of the of my environment my life at all and when if somebody would say something of sorts uh, people would just uh, start walking around it 10 with a 10 within 10 feet radius just because that person is obviously nuts it's it's uh, <laughs> you, you, you just should avoid that person <laughs> at all costs and uh, so Talking about mathematics, <laughs> when 
wife of my uh, friend uh, from high school, he's a professor at Penn State, uh, and his wife uh, started listening to our conversations. She was very often in tears because she thought we're insulting each other <laughs> without any limits while talking about mathematics. Uh, but uh, it wasn't that, uh, wasn't that at all. So it created somehow you, you don't really think when you talk about mathematics, you don't really think what people will think about you. You, you only think about the mm. issue at hand. That's what Dima says, but that's not how a lot of people feel. Mm. Uh, I, I feel that that's a gender issue also in some cases. Oh, I'm in sure, some I'm cases. sure. And I mm. certainly feel, um, I certainly felt, I, I'm not as much like that anymore because now I'm more comfortable basically in the community, but I certainly would have felt very anxious and throwing out an idea that I didn't know whether it was true or not. And maybe it was a stupid thing to say. So. So that would affect my ability to communicate, right? You can't hold back on those kinds of ideas when you want to make progress. And I wasn't able to do that when I was younger. Oh, thanks for sharing. It, it seems like you both of you have very different backgrounds from each other and uh, come from different cultures, mathematical cultures and, and you know, countries. Um, and, and still, you, you, work, you work as a team in a, in a really good way. Uh, what do you think, what is your recipe, your advice for a successful romantic relationship between two mathematicians? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, pressure. Yeah. Um, I mean, we talk about that a lot. We come from really different backgrounds. Um, but we have somehow, we, I, we both feel that we were really lucky to find each other in some sense because we're, we have a very common... Um, but this is not because of mathematics. This, this is, is not because of mathematics. This is no, human values. It's human yeah. values. I think we have common values. Like our core values are, are, are the same. And because of that, like even when we face difficult... I mean, we, we, we argue a lot, okay? Our household, like many, many times a day, we're you know, arguing about so many stupid things. And that happens when we write papers too. So on little things we... We disagree a lot, and we're always joking. We're we're trying to decide who's top dog in the house. Um, but on the core attitude, dog is behind us. Yeah, we have a dog behind us. Um, but on our core values, I think we're we're kind of similar, and I think, and I think even from a mathematical point of view, like I think we we're interested in the same types of problems. We have a similar mathematical taste. And because of that, and we also have a similar attitude towards writing and um, what we want to be clear and that our goal is communication. And so I think those are kind of prerequisites. And once you have those prerequisites, then you can work out the minor details. You can you can work out those other superficial issues, but you have, I feel like you have to have some core uh, values that are the same. Well, for, for a lasting relationship, I mean, you know, when you meet all this is not, in entirely clear at the first, you know, when you just meet and uh, like the scale of integrity, decency, behavior, and uh, all these things that <laughs> to some extent more important than mathematics, hmm. especially hmm. nowadays. Uh, we, we got lucky really in a way. Yeah. In a way we yeah. just got lucky. 
-hmm. So the, the bottom line is there is no generic advice. No, we can't give any advice. <laughs> Just oh, what do they say? Follow your heart, right? Wait, wait, <laughs> do, do you two discuss mathematics during meals at home? We do sometimes. We do sometimes. Less now than we used to. We used to more. Um, now we talk politics and, you know. Um, <laughs> but we used to talk sometimes. When we're working on a paper, sometimes we do because we're thinking about it all the time. Um, so sometimes we do. And I remember one time we were sitting at the dinner table and uh, we were talking about some paper we were writing and kind of arguing a little bit. And Sophie, who was, she was maybe like five, Dima, or six, something, something like that. All of a sudden she said, I don't want to hear anything more about these Z neighborhoods. <laughs> <laughs> so she was really, really tired of hearing us talk about complex analysis. Um, but we do sometimes. If we're working, we'll, we'll usually do that outside of our meal time. But sometimes we do. It depends what, you know, what we're working on. Mm -hmm. And on a more contemporary issue, um, how has the pandemic affected your lives? Uh, well, it, uh, yeah, it, it did. It's, it's, I think it's a little bit too early maybe to assess exactly how did it affect, but it, it did because uh, I just realized actually today that for over for two years, we haven't traveled to math conferences for over two years. And the we last, used to travel. The last one was in Barcelona. We used to travel to three conferences a year at least. At least. And uh, I mean, media, we meet, meet colleagues on Zoom and whatnot, but that is different. It's different. And even the, you know, we felt very isolated. We were at home teaching from home for, for, for a year. For a year and a half. Last year and half the whole uh, last year it started March and started in yeah for a whole year and then part of the previous semester and so you don't have those small conversations with colleagues in the hall you know like like sometimes you'll pass someone in the hall and we have this blackboard in our hall on the third floor where our offices are and sometimes you'll stop somebody and they'll say well I was thinking about your problem and let me show you what I thought or you know, at the seminar, we, we had our seminar online, but it's not the same when you have those daily encounters mm -hmm. with people um, where you're talking, you just, um, your research, suffered, my research suffered a lot. Like, to me, that was the biggest minus. No, definitely, definitely. And for you yeah. also, right? Mm -hmm. And it, teaching was exhausting. I mean, it was just so tiring to teach online. It just seemed like there were so many additional things that you had to worry about and plan and because we've all been teaching for so long that we've incorporated our routines and we do them without thinking and we had these completely new routines and new tools and we had to learn all sorts of technology and you know it was extremely mm -hmm. extremely stressful and and we were very very tired and I think I think we're still feeling the effects yeah. of that many of us mm -hmm. um, you know in the community and, and other people too um, but but I think one of the hardest things was not that that lack of that missing daily interaction with your colleagues, just mm. having the short informal conversations was really difficult. Not mm. having that. So we're moving on to some to the end, and um, I have three last questions for you. A little more on the fun side. So suppose you 
both stranded on a desert island. How do you think math could help you survive? <laughs> oh no, Dorothy. We can't What even change the there? light bulbs in our house. What a disaster. Well, what do you mean we? <laughs> we. Oh, you can and I can't. <laughs> um, well, hmm. We did, we, Dima did have someone who once uh, interviewed him because he, he has this research related to Laplacian growth, which is related to kind of how one model of it is how oil can spread um, in, in, on a flat surface. And so someone interviewed him and said, when Dimit, when geologists want to find oil, they call Dr. Havinson <laughs> to catch the <laughs> So maybe we would be able to find water on the island, Dima. You know, drinking water. You never know. But uh, but actually, I mean, you know, uh, the truth of the matter is that if uh, what is this uh, recent movie? Yesterday, it's called that. All of a sudden, something happens in the world, and beetles uh, mm -hmm. stop to exist, right? And then uh, and then they reinvent it immediately. Uh, well, if math somehow erased from the uh, hu human uh, endeavor uh, endeavors, it will have to be reinvented in the next split second because you you just mm -hmm. can't. Uh, you, you first, <laughs> like starting with uh, very simple things like counting. Mm -hmm. Secondly, if you are on the desert island, uh, you know. Unless it's really small, then you're doomed. Uh, but uh, for instance, you have to figure out where you are, right? How mm -hmm. do how are you going to do it without math? I mean, you, you wait for the night and you look at the stars and you you try to figure out where where, where you are and hmm. you look you look at the sun and the moon and uh, how do you you're not going to run around the island measuring distances. So trigonometry immediately comes uh, to you, and uh, what good is that when you have no food, Dima? You need to get your food. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm not saying that. Well, I'm not only tip of the spear to catch the fish. That's well, that's that's a good point because not, because not design. It's clear has to be sharpened at the end, but the fish shouldn't slip. <laughs> all the steel when you get it so it's uh, as you can see Dorothy this better not happen to us <laughs> and I'm not saying that math is this uh, soul savior but uh, without math you, you, you are not mm -hmm. you are not in great 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 shape well critical thinking I guess right I mean that's kind of what I talk about mm -hmm. in the class where I have students that aren't necessarily going to use every single piece of content we're talking about, but critical thinking for sure is crucial. Critical thinking and ability to solve problems mm -hmm. with the means at you have disposal. at your disposal, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Well, let's let's hope we 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 won't have to try it out. So. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, let's suppose you can have dinner with a historical figure of your choice. Who would that be? Mm. Let's see if you both agree. <laughs> Pushkin? <laughs> I don't know. That's a tough one. I would prefer to have a dinner party. With many? With many, Mozart? Yeah. Some literary figure for sure. 
No, I, I don't. I don't. Well, Archimedes, to me, Archimedes for some reason comes to mind because, hmm. uh, first of all, because it's such a distant figure. So, I mean, we we know a lot of uh, hearsay stories, but we don't really know. Hmm. At the same time, we know what he did, uh, which was was amazing, and. Uh, but so many, you know, mm -hmm. I definitely can tell you very easily a long list of people I wouldn't like to have dinner with. <laughs> <laughs> because that's every morning I wake up, it's imprinted in my mind. But um, it's so, so many different minds, not necessarily mathematicians either. And Dima, what, what makes Catherine love? <laughs> Well, uh, sometimes my foreigner attempts at linguistic jokes mm. are successful. <laughs> that makes her, her laugh. But sometimes when I'm trying to translate some puns from Russian into English, it fails miserably. <laughs> yeah. When I'm met with this blank stare, that's... <laughs> that either I fail as a translator or maybe the joke is not that funny. <laughs> and Catherine, what makes Dima laugh? Well, he, he, has, he, he likes a silly side because, you know, he takes life very passionately. He's very passionate about a lot of things. So if you can just be really silly and surprise him, he'll laugh. I'm taking a Russian class right now, so... Every day I come home and I, I state my new sentence that I've learned and that, that, that always makes me laugh because it's so ridiculous. So he has a very good sense of humor. I think that's one of the things we share. We laugh a lot together about all sorts of things. That's wonderful. Sarcasm. We both like sarcasm, I think. Yes. You have the same sense of humor. Yeah, we do have a similar sense so, of humor. Yeah. Mm. Oh, so nice. Well, with this, we are at the end of our interview. Thank you so much, Dima and Catherine, for participating. Thank you for listening to the Springer Math Podcast. Look out for another episode next month. <laughs>